Welcome to the Alporn Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Annette Cox. Annette, welcome. Hi, Annette. Hi. Annette is, uh, I believe, the manager of the Alpine Sisters, as well as one of their their standing members. And you also have quite a story of just of playing a lot. And it seems like getting fairly prolific career started quite early in your age, which is quite impressive. But started in the, the Wealth Youth Orchestra. See if I can get the correct name here. Yes. Yeah. National Youth Orchestra of Wales. There we go. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, so your first instrument was French horn? Uh, actually, I started playing piano first because my mum uh, is a piano teacher. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, I, I, my passion was always going to be brass instruments, I think, because my dad played the trumpet and my brother. So I really wanted to play brass. And I started then on the tenor horn, actually. Uh, I wanted to play the trombone when I was about eight. And then they told me my arms weren't long enough yet. So I decided... <laughs> And um, they said, yeah, choose tenor horn or French horn. And uh, I ended up choosing tenor horn because my granddad used to play it in um, brass bands. And then I changed to French horn about, it was about 11 or so, because I wanted to play in orchestras and like the music more that was written for French horn. Is that uh, about the age where most children will start in the UK? Yeah, I think the... When, when I was learning, the rule of thumb was kind of like, you should wait until you've got all of your adult teeth. So that used to be like uh, year four in our school, which is like eight and nine years old. Yeah. And then I guess a lot of kids don't start straight away with French horn because it's a little bit more difficult. Although nowadays they have these like kinder horns, which are great. Although back when I was learning, my first French horn was like a huge instrument. I could barely hold it like <laughs> with both arms out. Yeah. I, yeah, that's fun. It's been fun watching the development of instruments that make it easier for people to get started. Yes, yeah, amazing. So after after you got your start and were playing in Wales, when did you you went to London first before you ended up moving to Zurich? Yeah, uh, first of all, I did I did a gap year in Geneva when I was eighteen to learn French, and I worked in um, a nursing home uh, with old people. And then I went to Manchester University. So I was in Manchester for three years and then London and then Zurich. And hopefully I'm going to stay here now. <laughs> okay. And, and what was it that attracted you to Zurich? I wanted to study with a horn teacher here called Nigel Downing. He played in the Tonhaller Orchestra. And there was a really good uh, orchestra master course in, uh, in Zurich in the university. We say Zurich Hochschule de Kunst. I think it's the University of the Arts in English. Okay. Um, it's just such an amazing opportunity because uh, compared to Britain and I'm sure compared to America, it's also very expensive to study there too. The fees are almost nothing. It's like for a whole year, maybe like 1,500 francs and you get so much stuff for that, so many lessons. Uh, you get to be involved in so many projects. It was just, uh, yeah, an amazing opportunity to do this degree. That's, yeah, that's uh, quite a bit less expensive than American universities. Facilities, I mean, like, we, we start, I started learning natural horn. And when I was studying London, we had, like, two instruments that we had to share between all the horn players at Trinity, which is fine, you know, we still got to, we could have to sign them out and practice and stuff. But when, when you study here, you get your own natural horn for the whole duration of the time that you're studying. And it's, like, really top-notch, like, one that I couldn't even dream of buying kind of thing just yeah amazing the the resources they have the money i'm gonna say that sounds pretty similar to the swiss attitude of getting young people into the alporn as well where it's low rental fees or non-existent rental fees to like take the horn and go play yeah um and i like that attitude that's something that i would like to see more of here in the united states where it's make it easy and accessible for people to get involved in so as far as playing the horn what what groups are you involved with nowadays in Zurich are you doing much yeah. horn playing yeah I'm doing sort of freelancing uh, mostly playing with sort of smaller orchestras who need horns for maybe not all the time but for the odd project uh, next weekend I'm playing a hide and double concerto in St Gallen somewhere I'm not exactly sure the name of the town um, yeah it's like all sorts of Mainly orchestra stuff, really. Occasionally chamber music. Is is there much of a recording scene in Switzerland? 
I'm sure there probably is, but I've not been that involved in it. We do the occasional, yeah, Alphorn recording, but that's more something that we organise ourselves. But in terms of like film film sessions and things like that, do you mean more? Uh, just in general, like it was just, I, I don't know why I had really thought about that right then, but that was just a question that came up. I was like, I wonder if that's a, a big part of the music industry there as well. Well, I think I'd say no, not as much as London or other countries, because when you factor in that the wages are so high in Switzerland, it's not really that appealing to anyone outside of Switzerland to come to Switzerland to record. Yeah, yeah it's fair. It probably follows the film industry. So I guess that's why it would make sense to be based there in London and probably Berlin a little bit as far as Europe goes. Yeah. And then the Alphorn, when did you find out about the Alphorn or when did you decide that it's like, I have to play that or where do I get one? I first discovered actually when I was about 12, I was on, or 13, I was on holiday with um, my parents and yeah, my family in Switzerland. And um, we were I think uh, up a mountain, I think it was even uh, Jungfrau Joch, the really tall one. And there was some guy playing the Alphorn there. And I remember thinking, oh, that looks interesting. And then we went and talked to him and it turned out he was a, a trombone student studying in Vienna. And he went and played on the Swiss mountains in the summer as kind of like a summer job to earn some money. I think he was even getting paid by like the local tourist board to do it. And I think he let me have a go as well. And I'm I'd play a tiny bit of horn then so I could get some notes out and I thought it was cool, but I didn't really think so much more about it until I was living here uh, in 2013. And um, I was looking, just after my first year of study, I was looking for a summer job to earn some money and uh, survive the summer here. And um, I didn't manage to find anything because I couldn't speak German yet. And then I remembered like, oh, there was that, uh, yeah, that, that instrument on because I tried doing street music with horn a few times and it didn't really work out so well because it was a bit like being invisible uh, no one really kind of noticed and then I remember that other instrument was longer and louder probably and then I started I managed to borrow one off a friend of my cousin and went to the lake and played it and it was just amazing with the reaction people yeah were all very excited and giving money and stuff and so then I just realized yeah that was a a viable option to earn a bit of money on the sides, doing a bit of street music. And then a year later, I, I was studying then with uh, two of my colleagues, Carly Bigelow from Canada and uh, Yui Yukotake, now Beck from Japan. And we were all then looking for a summer job and decided to do it like then as a trio and uh, started out doing street music as a trio. And then it kind of went on from there. So that, that's where the, the Alpine Sisters got their start was? Yeah, that was the summer of 2015 then, yeah. Okay, and, and what was your relationship before that? Like, how did you know each other? Oh, we were all studying in uh, Horn in Zurich. Yeah, started around the same time. And I think we, we spent a lot of time together, because especially because of all being like international students and not knowing anyone when we arrived. Uh, so... We were very close and wanted to definitely do something together in the summer and then came up with this Alphorn idea. And then as soon as we started playing on the street, we found out it was a real bonus that we kind of weren't like the traditional Swiss Alpine horn players here because they tend to be quite old, uh, tend to be very, yeah, not not foreigners, um, mostly men. And so we were like the opposite of all those things and we got then just from playing on the street a lot of uh people asking if we would come play at their parties or their company events and things like that that's where it all then started fantastic yeah that's kind of one of the things that we're really trying to do uh here at the Alporn institute is try to get more people that are either in our generation or even younger involved and and just trying to build the interest because I, I think we're actually in a really good place as far as the popularity of the Alphorn, especially yeah. here in North America, but trying to make sure that that continues to grow. Do you ever with the group get a chance to like go work with uh, like school children, like do educational performances at all or where, where are some of those focuses? We do all teach, but most of the teaching we do like as a group is mainly adults, actually. 
but mo- yeah, it's quite a lot of beginners we teach. And then, yeah, Jessica and Kamiko have got teaching jobs with children as well. But we haven't actually specifically done any school performances for kids. Um, I did one on my own once. It was good. I had a carbon outpour there, which is very easy to clean. So I let like half the school try it out. And <laughs> that was before Corona. I wouldn't do that now. Yeah, we. that was one of the things that we used to do during the, the band performances was... Um, we would do like Alporn blowing competitions. Yeah. <clears throat> and even like sanitizing the mouthpieces with the spray between now it's just like, mm, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. It's strange how much this all changed. Yeah. But I mean, actually we've, we're putting a lot of effort now into doing Alporn performances, kind of like the other end of the spectrum for, for old people rather than for children. Although I could imagine at some point in the future, it being something that we did. Adapting okay. that. And, and so that that leads into you do quite a bit of work with music therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And is that mostly something that you do as a solo performer? Is that kind of your personal pursuit or do you do that with the, with the rest of the group as well? Well, we're just starting out. Um, we're wanting to start doing con- Alporn concerts specifically tailored for people with dementia. And we've done, we've done a few performances in all people's homes and stuff, but then I've, we sort of seen that, it's often the case they love the Alporn as a sort of traditional symbol, especially the older generation. And they, as soon as they hear it, they have like a very emotional reaction to it. They find it really beautiful, the sound. But then after sort of five, 10 minutes, it can get a bit boring. And then you realize like people with dementia, you, you need a bit more interaction and something to keep their attention a bit better. So we're, we're hoping to sort of come up with a, a thing where we've got like, combination of different things like a powerpoint with uh, alpine scenery we're going to tell a story of like the development of the alporn from when it was just used for um, to communicate from mountain to mountain to to modern things with backing tracks even and then help get let them have like things to play along with uh, like cowbells and things like that because it's, it's really good if they can also like touch and see things as well not just uh, have the listening and that, yeah, it's just kind of based on the principles of my work as a music therapist. Although as a music therapist where I work, I, I don't actually use a lot of Alporn at the moment because of Corona. I'm basically mainly playing percussion instruments and singing. That's the main things I do. And now I'm guessing the percussion is a little bit easier to keep everyone involved in the process. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's uh, very motivating. Helps everyone there. You can really have a experience of what do you, how do you say that Syn- synchronicity which is uh it's interesting because especially if they can't often if, if they've got quite advanced dementias uh speaking becomes more and more difficult to, to speak and to understand speech and then uh the way that our brains work with music we because it uh is interpreted by multiple parts of the brain at the same time they can still kind of understand music or perceive music and uh, enjoy it and participate in music, even if they're not able to speak. So it can enable them to have like a social interaction that would otherwise not be possible. Oh, nice. Sean, I feel like I've kind of been steamrolling the interview here. You didn't get any questions for now? Oh, I've got so many questions and I, I've really enjoyed this conversation so far. And that, One of the things that uh, we have encouraged over the last two years during COVID is that people go out into nature and connect with nature and and all of our Alporn family, we've said, go play your Alporn in the mountain, go play your Alporn in nature. Talk about some of your experiences. Do you have Alporn adventures or... uh, uh, so something that's memorable where you have played in this amazing part of the world where you live? Yeah, um, it's strange actually because, like, when I first started playing, I always assumed, oh, I'm gonna um, maybe play a little bit of the lake at the beginning and then go straight to the mountains and it's gonna be great. But then most of the playing that we actually do is in the cities. Uh, if we do street music, we're all in Bern and Basel and Geneva and Zurich. Lutern. but then playing in the mountains is it's just different it's special yes. yeah yeah 
Do you have any uh, adventures that uh, where you've played that uh, was really memorable or special? Well, I think talking of mountains, one example comes to mind. It was, uh, I think they just booked us as a duo. So it was Carly Bigelow and I, and we were doing um, a wedding in an Alp hut. They have like these Alpine huts really high up above the tree line here. They can't be reached by public transport. You have to hike up. And yeah, it was going to be a little bit tight getting there on time. And then we had to change trains somewhere in the middle of nowhere but there were two trains leaving from the same platform at the same time and we got the wrong one <laughs> so we ended up really in a rush and we had to run up this uh mountain then in the end to get there at the right time we luckily had carbon albums but <laughs> and then uh once we got there it was, it was the summer but it snowed so much that we had to stay overnight uh, even though we were expecting to be going home the same day so we had to stay at this wedding in one big one big dorm room with all of the guests who were like a lot of them were drunk and most of them were snoring. <laughs> it was kind of, yeah, it was definitely experience. That's a good one. I, yeah, I That's a good one. So it's a little more harried than any of the, the ones that I have from performances. <laughs> yeah. We, I, the best one I have from a, like a, at a, a venue high up in the mountains, we, we got hired to do a birthday party. And it was it was with our full band at one of the ski resorts, but they had a, a lodge at the top of one of the mountains that they service. And in order to get there, since we couldn't drive, they actually we had to load all of our equipment into a horse drawn carriage and oh. have that take us up to the lodge. <laughs> but yeah, we didn't we didn't have to worry about a train and we didn't have to like run up the hill. So <laughs> I would I really don't recommend it before playing. <laughs> That's a great adventure. I a few years ago, I, as Robert Robert knows this story, I had the opportunity to play with one of my Alpine Alporn heroes, uh, Bill Hobson, and we had this group together. We were playing, and it started raining, and I I was so I was horrified. I mean, I protected my Alporn, and and he took me aside and he said, "This was a shepherd's instrument." It's made to be played outside. It's fine. Just and having him give me that talk from then on, I started. I just put it on my backpack and I hike and ski with my Alphorn everywhere. And I it. I think it is a special experience being in the mountains, being outside, and having that opportunity to play. I've spent a lot of time in Switzerland, and that's really how I became interested in the Alphorn and the the Alpine culture, which is so similar to where I live in a lot of ways. I just, I find this, this interesting connection between where I live in the Wasatch and uh, where you live in Switzerland. There's a lot of interesting connections. I've got a lot of questions about, you, you have with this, this amazing classically trained musician and Robert and I talked to a friend recently who is a professor at a university and what he's doing is using the Alphorn, this old instrument to take some of his very best students and he puts them through a semester of Alphorn training. Right. And it, it's a, he said, it's, it's incredible. It's a tool. You can't cheat it. You have to hear, create the note and you cannot cheat this instrument. Talk about going from your experience in porn performance and then playing this, playing the out porn, how has that strengthened your ability as an artist for some of your other instruments that you play? Uh, yeah. Oh, can I ask a quick question first? Just what, this professor, what were the students playing before? Were they, were they French horn players? Or? No, it, they were trumpet. They mm -hmm. were trombone. French horn. I mean, I, I think he's got English horn. I mean, he's got a, he's got artist, these different artists that are pursuing a path. And he takes these students and puts them into a semester of horn training. And then when they go back to their instrument, they, he said, they're amazing artists. And talk about your experience playing different instruments. How, how has the Alphorn made you a better artist? I think the main things for me, it's like, 
it's kind of like you have to decide yourself how it's supposed to sound. Uh, whereas if you're playing in an orchestra, you're always having to fit in. Okay, sure, in the trio, we have to play together and stuff. But I did so much street music on my own that, yeah, this kind of... Um, the freedom, which can also be a bit daunting because you still need the structure and the rhythm and, yeah, you need to sort of uh, balance between it being um, calm and maybe getting slower towards the end of a phrase and just sounding completely boring. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a thing. But also I found because it's limited in the sense of the notes that you can play with the harmonic series, it's given me confidence to improvise, which I never had before on the horn. That's and funny. also to compose. I never composed uh, music properly. To, well, maybe I composed some stuff when I was like a kid or something. But after I started studying music, it was like, oh, that's you know something com composers do. They compose and they study that. And like, I'm just a horn player. I don't know. Can't. <laughs> and yeah, with Alcorn, it's like, it just seems like, well, there's not so many options anyways in terms of harmony and things, so you can't really do much wrong, so you may as well just go for it. And and, and I really enjoy it now. I've written quite a few things. And oh, we'd love to see your pieces. We'd, and oh, yeah. we'll, we'll connect with you on, after this discussion. We would love to review some of the pieces that you've written. Oh, thanks, yeah. Yeah, I've got, well, just two that uh, would be good examples. One, one was based on... Um, Ostinato from Arkady Silkopper. I saw you uh, interviewed him as well a while ago. Yeah, uh, I was lucky enough to have a lesson off him uh, wow. when he was there to here in Zurich, and it was uh, yeah, really inspirational. Amazing, amazing guy, amazing player. And um, yeah, so I made a piece based on one of his ostinatos for for the Alpine competition in uh, Nanda that Jessica Frossard and I played, and then another one. It's also on YouTube. That's uh, called Eine Waliserin in Wallis, which means a Welsh woman in Wallis. Because I spend a lot of time in Wallis because my partner's family's from there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's also got like bits of a Welsh folk tune in it called Calon Lan. That's yeah. more traditional. Uh, that's great. You mentioned Arcady. I love Arcady. We have had such a great connection with him and. Uh, Coincidentally, this month I've been learning his one of his famous pieces, Alpen Rose, that is an interesting piece that if you ha haven't played that, I've about have it memorized. And it's a, you're right, he's a very talented artist and uh, is inspirational. I really look forward to seeing some of your work and uh, would, would love to have the opportunity to play some of your pieces with you at some point. Oh yeah. Well, I can send you the music anyway. You don't need them. You don't need, need me to play them. <laughs> yeah. We'd love it. Fair enough. Uh, we are planning to go to Nanda yes. this year. So we'll be in the this area year. at least. <laughs> oh, great. Are you, is that going to be this year or next year? It's this year. I think they, I think it's this year. Yeah, I think we're going to go as well. So maybe we'll see you there. Oh, we would love that. I actually believe a few years ago, you actually met my father, Tony Brazelton. There think... a couple members of your group oh, did at least. Yeah, Monica as well. Yeah. And Monica, yeah. you know Monica? Okay, good. Yeah, we met there, uh, not, yeah, just briefly, but it was, it must have been like seven years ago now. Or, yeah. Well, time flies. But yeah. It's really nice. What is it like being in the, world capital of the Alphorn. I've just had this incredible experience that it's a very small community in the the US and North America. Yeah. We know we pretty much know everyone and they're so they're it's like family. Uh yeah. and then when we play, I I had this uh, the opportunity to play in just a, a kind of a remote area last weekend and it's just this huge attraction at all of these people i mean we probably had 100 people that just oh what is that what, how is that and you're playing in the in the country where it was developed and it's the national symbol of switzerland what is it like playing in switzerland do you have that same kind of experience with other Alphorn artists and what is it like when you play? Do you have that attraction like we have here? Do you mean like the the other players or the people who just hear it and come and say hello? Yeah, and... the, the I, I, I'm interested in two 
two parts to this question. What what's your relationship with the other Alphorn artists in in Switzerland? And it's an, the national symbol of Switzerland. Do you have, like I said, I just, I'll pull it out. And then immediately there's a hundred people that want to know what everything about it. And they just love it in the, in North America. Do you have that same experience in Switzerland? I think uh, it, people have a very strong emotional reaction to it, which I, I noticed when I first started playing street music, it was like, some people just literally cry and give you notes, you know, like money. And it was like, well, I always felt a bit bad at first, but then, yeah, it tends to be, it tends, depends a lot on the kind of demographic. I noticed if I play in Bern, for example, there's a lot more Swiss people in Bern and older people. So you get a lot more money because people really like the traditional stuff. Whereas I, I notice often here, young people seem to think of it as maybe a bit lame which is a shame. But. Really? Okay. And we've had the opposite. I I can't tell you how many young people, they want to know everything about it. They've never seen or been exposed to it. They love it. I mean, a lot of, some people do come up and start talking about didgeridoo, um, some younger people. I've had a lot of people when I'm doing street music want to play didgeridoo next to me and play together. <laughs> I usually tell them you know. <laughs> We We know somebody like that, right, Robert? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, my, my dad is, uh, he likes to try to get those combinations together. I mean, it can be done, but I, I think that's when the novelty might wear off a little. <laughs> one thing I would say here is like, and I thought that's something I, I would be interested in to see what it's like in the States, because here everyone has an opinion on what Alporn should be like if, if they do know it. And that can be a little bit annoying because, uh, for example, when we first started playing, I know it's a logo, but we, yeah, we had no idea. And we were just playing with our horn mouthpieces with an adapter for a short oh. time. Oh, and that was not oh, okay. that was terrible. People we just walking past us on the street and, and just being like, that's not allowed in Switzerland, and walking off. Like, <laughs> why, why does it bother you? Like, it was a tap on them almost that we were playing with a metal mouthpiece. But, but now we play with wooden ones anyway because it sounds better. But, um, and then, and I, I struggle a little bit with that sometimes because as a classical musician, I also do like uh, historically informed performance, like with natural horn. And I know there's so much thought that goes into finding out exactly what it would have sounded like there and it different from city to city and time to time. And then you have here people just saying things like playing together Alporn on a mountain with 200 people is traditional. And actually it's not. If you look at the old albums, they're different lengths and they could never play together and stuff like that. But... Just well, not kind with of, much success, at least. <laughs> no. Maybe more sort of call and answer. But, yeah, just this, like, sort of conviction that this is definitely traditional when it actually might not be exactly as they would have done it a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah, I think that's one thing that's interesting about the Alphorn itself is, you know, we know the instrument in its form of what we see today is roughly five or 600 years old. Yeah. depending on how you would define that. But I think all of the written history that we have about it really only dates from the middle of the 19th century, maybe even late 19th century. So it's kind of hard to figure out what really was this predating the written history because we don't, I mean, I think before that it was largely an oral tradition. So it wasn't, yeah. there's not a lot in the physical record of what it is or was supposed to be. And there is a lot of similar instruments in other cultures as well, right. like long wooden things that, yeah, not necessarily Swiss. And that's another thing Swiss people identify very strongly with the Alphorn and forget sometimes that it, it's also like an Alpine tradition. It could be Austrian or German as well. Very much. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's one that I have, I've reminded some people about here is that they're, they're like trying to talk about, well, like, is it purely Swiss? And I was like, well, not really, because the borders that are here between countries now didn't exist, at least how they are, when yes. the instrument was invented. Like, it wasn't, you know, it was a different different world, different kind of political climate at that point. Yeah. It was a shepherd's instrument. It was a mountain instrument. And I, I think conveying that throughout the community, throughout the world community is uh, so important and that 
there was a, a history before what Switzerland has, has said uh, is the history of Alporn, and I love where it's going. I think it's amazing. In America, that like how how long has there been an Alporn scene there? Um, I think <laughs> as far as I've been able to see, I, I mean, there's people that I think anytime someone moved over from Switzerland, there was probably a few that came into the United States. So there've probably been Alporns in the U.S. since the late, late 1800s. 1800s. Yeah. The first record I've seen of someone buying one and importing it uh, probably dates back to the 60s. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, 1960s. Um, but as far as like kind of a scene, I would say that that really started in the late 80s, early 90s. You're exactly right, Robert. So uh, where I live, Annette, there there was a, a interestingly, there was a large Swiss population of immigrants from the 1800s and they settled in this little valley that they they called it little switzerland uh, for a while there is a uh in one of the government buildings there is an alphorn it's in that ranger station uh, robert in at wasatch national park that they believe was was made in the, either the late 1800s or early 1900s and it's uh it's part of this history uh but you're right. I mean, it, until really until the early 1990s, uh, there was there wasn't a lot of people didn't know what it was. People, unless they'd been to Switzerland, they'd never heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the ways that there was actually a decent amount of exposure to the Alphorn really, I think, started when the Epcot Center in Florida at Disney World opened mm-hmm. and they had their German their their German beer hall there and Alporns were part of the show during that. So I think that kind of spread. And then actually um, outside of the Alporn, I also work in a German band and and Yodel and work in that. That's kind of structured on what the Epcot show is. And there's a few different bands that are set up that way around the United States and were started by people who worked at Epcot. And then after they kind of were like, all right, that was fun, but now I want to go back to where I lived before and then they start that show. So there's yeah. a few that are similar like that. And it's kind of been spreading along with the popularity of Oktoberfest type events and mm-hmm. all of that. So it's, it hasn't, it's been, I don't know, interesting. Cause I was kind of my, you know, my dad's been playing um, with his group since about 1995. Yes. Yeah. So I've kind of grown up with the Alphorn and then have followed kind of, I think the, the, the growth of the yeah. interest in the Alporn. But the there were some makers as well. Yeah. In so, um so we we've had a couple. I think the only builder in the United States who made more than a handful was John Littleton. Mm-hmm. And his horns were actually made of a fiber resin com- I think pretty close to fiberglass was what he designed oh. his out of. And they actually they actually played like the carbon ones? No, they're kind of a traditional three-piece design, just happened to be made of like a fiberglass, and then they would have the rattan wrapping. And they played pretty well. It was interesting. They had a, they were a pure cone all the way through. They didn't really have a bear, bell flare. Mm-hmm. Um, and they played well. The, the first two or three albums that my dad's band did, that's what they recorded on, and they sound sound just as nice but when we started wanting to travel to europe and and wanted to get more involved then it was like okay we should get wood horns now otherwise people will be angry <laughs> well, worse. bill hobson although he's he's lived in canada for 50 years he's american and uh he, he built uh what 150 robert yeah i think 146 150 something like that and and his I think he was a large driving force between behind the um, interest in the Alphorn here in North America as well. Like just someone who was able to do that at such a high level mm. um, and yeah. so much acclaim in Europe. And, and that was part of, we, we were aware of him. We actually went to Switzerland to one of Fritz Frucci's camps 
to meet him before we started the North American Alpine Retreat in 2008. So we've been networking. Actually, it was one of Fritz's events where I met Arcadi for the first time as well, before we were able to get him over to teach at our event. Cool. And an interesting story that... uh, Tony had mentioned to me just a few weeks ago, he has the now the original horn that Bill brought back from Europe. I think he brought it back from Germany, interestingly. It was, oh, yeah. it was an F horn. It was, it was a horn from Germany built in the key of F. And it was, it was an old horn. I think this horn's from maybe the 60s, uh, mid-60s. And he used it as as his model for building the, these 150 horns, and all of them were enough. <laughs> yeah, so we, yeah, I we I think we might have sold that one actually. Oh, I think um, maybe you did. Maybe you just sold um, it. But yeah, it was one of the first. It was one of when Bill was getting started. He bought three ship box and sent them over, and then his horns were modeled after after that he kind of took that design and was like what else would i like to change but yeah (laughs) restarted well annette talk about your horn i one of the things i am so in love with in this with the alp horn in this community is the the instrument itself is art and uh so talk talk to us about your horn and some of the horns you've played that you really love yeah uh so my first Alphorn was uh, von Henzer. I think you interviewed him as well. I saw yes, the... yeah. And it was, uh, I, I, I just loved it. I fell in love with it immediately when I saw it. It was, uh, it's made of walnut, American walnut. That's right. Uh, very, yeah, dark wood. And it played really nicely. I think especially for me as a horn player starting out, it had like a similar resistance because it's with the harder wood is more resistance. So it felt more similar to the horn for me, but then I ended up selling it in the end because it was just so heavy, like to carry it around. It was literally more than twice the weight of another out, like wooden alp horn. It was, yeah, crazy. So I did like that one, but sold it. And now, then I got a Resonar alp horn. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yeah, yeah I, a, haven't, I haven't had a chance to try one yet, but I, I have seen a little bit about, about them. I need to do some more research and probably get in contact with them. Yeah, yeah. So the the guy who designs them is called uh, Stefan Kost, really nice guy. And I met him at Nanda also like four or five years ago. Um, And I borrowed a mouthpiece to try and really liked it because it was uh, kind of based on the shape of a horn mouthpiece. So it felt comfortable to me. And then I got to know him because of that. And then uh, I often do teaching for him, uh, teaching alphorn courses for uh, beginner adults and then um eventually ended up playing one of his horns i think the one i've got is a pilatus i don't know if he still makes them there's like lots of different models but but they're really good um for the price you know of course you can pay twice as much and get a handmade swiss one but i think for the price um yeah they're, they're excellent instruments and then uh i think it was two years ago I got a message from someone who'd inherited an alphorn and wanted me to try it out because they wanted to see if it was any good. And I went there, I'd never met this person before. And it it was like a really old two-piece Swiss one from 1980. And I can't find out anything about the person who built it. It just says a beer. And anyway, I tried it out, said it was nice. And then they just said, oh, well, if you want it, have it. So actually that's now become my main alphorn that I play. Wow. uh, the old two-piece one it just for some reason I just really like the way it feels to play and it's got kind of carving on the bell which I think is really nice interesting yeah I haven't seen too many Swiss horns that have carving on them yeah like some of the really old ones do and the bell the bell compared to Henzer and Resonar is pretty narrow Uh, I don't know if that's like a more traditional build or yeah yeah I of the the older horns that I've seen, I've noticed that they didn't do quite as much of a bell flare yet. I think that, yeah. I think the bell flare probably came around when more people started trying to use them in conjunction with orchestras and other bands to get mm-hmm. a little more projection. I think you're yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that for the fact that they had the overall design of an alphorn figured out about 500 years ago, how much builders have really been able to 
play around with that and try to fine tune it. Yeah. Like I, I've seen some of the ones that Gerald Poe did early on when he was experimenting and is like, that's an interesting take. I don't, <laughs> don't know that all of them helped too, too much, but it was a, it was a fun to watch to see the kind of progression of how he ended up to getting oh, his, especially like his four piece horns. Like that's the horn that I have that I travel with. That's just oh, yeah. fantastic. And then I have a Walnut Henza as well. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which I, I really like. I don't mind the heavier horn, but I, I know some players where it's like trying to do that for an hour or so is just like, okay, my shoulders don't like it anymore. If you if you don't need to walk around, because I, I don't have a car, so I'm always on the train and then... Oh. Can, if it, I guess if you've got a car, it's fine. The actual playing and holding it was okay. But yeah, the, just the carrying it with street music was get, got a bit... Uh, much so the the busking is something that uh is kind of interesting culturally i don't see as much of it in the united states and then the people that i do see that are out performing on the street it seems like they kind of have their area and there's not a lot of like room to move around or if i was if i felt interested it would feel like i'm trying to compete and take over someone else's like patch kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, I find that interesting that culturally busking seems to be a lot more welcome in Europe, at least compared to the places that I am usually in the United States. Um, how, where's, how far have you been able to go and where all have you done any street performance? Like how, how much is that a chance for you to kind of travel and see different cities as well? It's been, um, I've d- done a lot of traveling within Switzerland. I can compare it to Britain because I did a bit of busking there. And that was a lot more strict in Britain, though, a lot less places where you could play. And then I did take my carbon alphorn once to London because I wanted to play. I don't know if you know, where is it? Is it near? Is it Leicester Square? There's like a big Swiss thing with loads of the canton, uh, the loads of the flags of the cantons. And I thought, well, that'd be great to play alphorn next to that. But yeah, I got moved on immediately because it was not allowed. (laughs) It's like, I was trying to explain to them, like, do you know what this is? But yeah. But no, it's very like strict. Everyone has their own patch. And then I guess you just have to wait until they leave. Whereas in Switzerland, uh, every city has different rules, but it's quite fair. You usually have like half an hour where you can play and then you have to move on to another place. And it has to be like not within hearing distance of the first place. And it's meant that, Playing in Bern and Basel and Lucerne and Geneva was all good. You have to put a bit of time in to make sure you know the rules and if you need a permit or not. <laughs> I love this. This is so Swiss. <laughs> what, they're being all so organized? <laughs> no, you're going to follow the rules and this is, these are the rules. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I have got into trouble, uh, and it's such a strange thing. Like I never had this before, but like, yeah, fighting with accordion players who kind of operate as gangs, and I'm like, well, I'm going to play here next, and they're like, no, my friend's going, and I'm like, no, I'm going to play, and like, get the half on Very aggressive, but mostly it's fine. And they have like quite strange rules, like in Basel, you can play from eleven to eleven thirty. 12 till 12.30, and then not again until 4, and then 4 till 4.30. Oh, my goodness. Spots in between, and then if you do meet an accordion gang, it can get problematic because you try and tell them you're coming back later, and they, yeah. But um, that's also having these, like, very strict rules. That is amazing. (laughs) No playing on a Sunday in any city except for by the lake in Zurich. What? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I didn't know any of this. Oh, and you could also get caught out quite easily if you if you go from, I think, yeah, Zurich is like a Protestant canton and has different um, holidays sometimes from other cantons that are Catholic. So if you don't realise and you go to Lucerne or something to play and you don't realise it's a holiday, then you could get in a lot of trouble. Oh my <laughs> but luckily I've always been okay. Oh my goodness, that's hilarious. Uh, of all the conversations I expected to have today, gangs of accordion players was not gangs one of, of them. Oh, I should tell you about the stuff that we get given as well. I got mostly money, thankfully, but uh, we got all kinds of weird things like orange juice, pasta, uh, <laughs> flowers, get quite often, and chocolate. That's nice. 
Uh, I also got my best, the best thing I ever got was uh, once someone gave me an old gold coin, like oh. an old uh, 20 franc coin. And I was going to put it in just a box of foreign coins because uh, I thought, oh, that's not one of the Swiss ones. And then I saw a little Swiss flag on it and was like, what's this? And yeah, it was like a, a really old coin made of gold. And I ended up selling it and buying a stand up paddleboard. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a nice tip. Yeah. No, I definitely, definitely recommend when you when you're in Switzerland and you've got an Alpon, you may as well do some street music. <laughs> Nothing to lose. Yeah, that's I. I know that like Dad's done more of that. I've always felt a little uncomfortable about it, just because, like I said, for me it seems like it's it feels like I'm trying to compete with someone else's spot instead of just like going out and playing. The first, the first couple of minutes can be a bit embarrassing, and then it's fine. You just have to power through these first couple of minutes and then you feel because once you're there then people are used to it's as if you were always there but when you're setting up and starting to play then you feel like you're kind of disturbing the the balance the peace it's fair uh so you mentioned stand-up paddleboarding is that kind of one of your main hobbies outside of music and, and what are some of your other interests and hobbies outside of music in your career yeah me and my partner go quite often in the summer we're not that hardcore that we go in the winter as well that would be pretty cold uh, because we live uh, in the old town of Zurich so we're quite near the lake and we can just walk down from our house to the lake so it's a cool way to see Zurich from another sort of point of view <laughs> from the water uh, we go hiking quite a bit I've just bought some skis so I want to get a bit better at that I'm not great at skiing but so that this is when I this is really how I love to play the Alphorn is in the mountains on my skis in the winter. I'm leaving for Greenland in a few weeks and I'm taking my Alphorn to Greenland to play every night while wow. I ski. Did, so, do you go, is it a wooden Alphorn? I, I, I have a, a min, I have several wooden Alphorns, uh, but I uh, just got a composite Alphorn and I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to take the wood or composite. I'm leaning towards the wood Alphorn, actually, Robert. <laughs> is it easy skiing? I, I could. I don't think I could do it. it yeah, very good. I mean, this Alphorn's thirty pounds, and then I and then I carry a thirty pound avalanche pack with me when I ski as well. Whoa. So it's a it's a heavy pack, but I I'm, I mean I've been doing it for a few years now since since Bill Hobson said no, take that instrument into the mountains. So I have. I've just been hauling it around with me, and I've loved it. It's incredible. What kind of uh, Alphorn objectives do you have for this year? Are there some things that you have on your list that you want to accomplish uh, tied to the Alphorn? Definitely, yeah. I really want to set up this uh, Alphorn for Dementia yes. thing. Yeah, it's just oh, I'm trying to get the timing right at the moment with Corona because if I wrote to all of the nursing homes in the area and advertised it. And then we suddenly went into another lockdown and maybe they'd forget by the time we came out again. So yeah, that's why I think at the moment, but yeah, that's, that's one plan. And another one is, but maybe slightly more long-term. I want to do some more recordings in really in the mountains. My idea would be um, to, yeah, to, to find out some places where, where composers were said to have heard the Alphorn, probably shouldn't be saying this because everyone else is going to steal this idea now. <laughs> but like, so like Brahms in his first symphony has this like uh, horn call, uh, da -da -da, that's said to be based on an Alphorn melody that he actually heard. And I'd like to find out where, where was he when he heard that and then go and play it as kind of an idea to be like, maybe this is how it might have sounded. I don't know. You want to take this, Robert? I was gonna say I can I can actually so I know it's around Bern, some yeah. somewhere over there. But I can I can ask uh Bill Hobson. He might know like a specifically which city he was in. Yeah. Um and we do have a very early arrangement of that piece as well. Hokoffenberg. So the music that he heard, he wrote and wrote it on a postcard and and mailed it to Clara Schumann. Yeah. <laughs> and then came back and wrote the whole symphony. Yeah. Oh, and it, I agree. I love that story. So cool. But there there were other ones as well, other examples. 
Beethoven for the Pastoral Symphony. I'm oh, not sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, all kinds. Um, yeah. I'd obviously have to look at a bit and uh, come up with a plan. But I think yeah. that could be... That would be that would be a fun project. I'm sure we could kind of uh, reached out to some ethnomusicologists that have kind of studied that a little more and find out where those locations are. Yeah, because I think Bill Hobson has a pretty good history of where some of those locations are, and then I think probably Dr. Demers I think would probably be a good resource to find some of those locations as well. Yeah, true. Yeah, there was a book that was written just a. I think it was written last year, and that it's called the the Alphorn through the eyes of the classical composer, huh. and the and the writer is from the UK. Her name's Frances oh, Jones. I was just going to say Frances Jones. Yeah, she, Jones. Wrote, she did a PhD on uh, the influence of the Alphorn on classical composers. So I'd definitely be using, hoping to draw upon her kind of research in order to find the places and so yeah i have i have the book i'm looking at it right now it's a great book um i i read it uh last year and it it talks a lot about some of the genesis of these classical pieces from masterworks that were inspired by the alphorn it's a fantastic book we'll we'll put a link to it in the episode oh yeah please do yeah yeah, I even contacted her once a few years ago to ask, and she was really, really helpful. Sent me um, like some copies of articles and stuff. A great book. Yeah, and oh, she yeah. talks about Mozart, and she talks about his influence. Uh, his father loved uh, Leopold Mozart. Absolutely loved uh, the Alphorn, and wrote a symphony uh, about uh, uh, and Christmas carols uh, with the Alphorn written into the symphony. Yeah, there's one for Alphorn in G, I believe, That's Leopold true. Mozart. Right. Uh, so other objectives that you have, is there anything that, uh, do you have adventures planned uh, that are tied to the Alphorn? Uh, it's this recording? Yeah, we're trying to do kind of a balance between, we're trying to get our sort of financial base and stability from corporate stuff like company parties, and then also spend some time doing more creative things that maybe are less well-paid, but more interesting for us. One of our members, Jessica Frossard, might be interesting to talk to her another time. She has a very different um, kind of experience with the Alphorn compared to me, because I didn't grow up here, whereas she's Swiss. So she also comes from this kind of like, uh, Alphorn's a bit lame as a young person sort of thing, and wants more to do experimental stuff. Um, finds the traditional stuff a bit more boring whereas I don't mind so much because I didn't grow up with it it's like Eliana yeah 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 exactly (laughs) but um yeah she's doing quite a bit of yodeling as well and we're 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 starting to sort of build that a little bit into our performances and we we kind of got another you we got our main YouTube channel the Alpine Sisters and then um another one more uh called the Alpine Sisters Unleashed which is like to for silly stuff like greetings, greetings and funny hats and stuff like that. And Unleashed. That's a great. So your 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 sisters are all from other countries around the world, uh, Canada, Switzerland, the UK, and Japan, right? Yeah. Is that are those okay. So I mean so <laughs> does your Swiss sister say, okay, here's how this works. And like translates for you or every anything goes it's unleashed (laughs) um how do you mean like with the when we're performing or yeah yeah, yeah. this is this is this is how it's done here or is it is do you have some of that from her or no no, it's just let's go yeah and she she wasn't that keen on the alphorn at the beginning until we started playing together because she had this kind of experience from childhood that it was a bit boring and then when we started playing together we started doing more improvising and yeah had fun doing the gigs together and then she got into album playing because of that so actually she she doesn't come from that sort of traditional background of album playing in that sense but and um the, your sister from japan i hope i'm pronouncing this correctly yui yui yeah yeah 
there is such a strong outpouring al- culture in Japan and a strong alpine connection. They love it. I think it's it's sort of my story of there's this connection to the mountains, to the outdoors, and and Alporn. And so talk about her experience in Japan and uh, why she's pursued this in Switzerland. Yeah, she um, she started playing in Switzerland uh, with us. I don't think she'd really thought much about it before. But then, okay. you know, uh, I mean, there, yeah, there is this like growing Alporn scene in Japan and they take it so seriously. They... Um, a lot of the time they have to build their own Alporn to be able to join the group. And then depending on how that went, sometimes they go and buy an Alporn somewhere else as well to play on. And the the women like sew all of their own like traditional costumes and stuff to, that look like the Swiss uh, tracht. So they're really like passionate about it. And we met a group in uh, Nanda, must have been six years ago or something, and a Japanese Alporn group. And that was, that was really interesting. But yes, yeah, she, she really did only start playing here. And Kamiko too, she's also from Japan and she's also in the group. And I'm, I know Yui's definitely gone back to Japan since and done concerts with an Alporn group. Okay, yeah, it was, it was really interesting because she, Yui won um, the whole uh, Nonva competition. Um, it must have been about five years ago as, as a soloist. As a soloist, right. Yeah. You're all like very interested in like how on earth did this happen? This woman from Japan coming here and playing Alpine, and yeah. <laughs> but it. that's one of my plans. Uh, we, I, I've never been to Japan. I really want to go. I, I love Japanese food and the <laughs> and the Japanese skiing. Japanese skiing. Skiing, it's incredible. Oh yeah, that's also something to try. But yeah, we we'd like to hopefully try and uh, maybe get in contact with one of these groups and organize like a little tour or, or something like that. Yeah. I'm in the, I'm in the same, same boat there. I'd like to get in contact and kind of try to do some networking there and meet some of those groups. And I'd be interested in like going over and doing the process of building the horn and learning kind of their approach to it as well. Yeah. That'd be great. Probably reach out to uh, Charlotte Vigneault again and see if she can, help us get in contact with them because i know she went over and did that did she build one as well i believe so yeah yeah that's right her, her book is also a very good read as far as the history alpone goes yeah so she does so she has a, a nice take on the history as well so that's another good res- oh. resource Write that down. Yeah. <laughs> and uh now we'll link all of your your youtube channel your website social media into the episode notes as we wrap this up is there i mean do you have a some trivia that you love about the alphorn or the a story that you want to share as we close this episode i don't know if i've got much trivia i've got some advice maybe okay let's hear it you do street music and you use your case um, to collect money, then make sure <laughs> you make sure all the coins are gone before you put the album back in. Because uh, I did that, and then a few days later we were doing a concert, and Carly um, from Canada, Carly Bigelow, she was using, I think it was my Henzer horn, the one I've been using for street music. And then we were in the middle of a concert, and then suddenly this coin just like, it must have been lodged right at the top by the mouthpiece. It just came flying out like so fast and went like right up in the air landed quite far away from where we were playing, right by some uh, one of the elderly residents. And then she was like looking around to see if anyone had noticed and then picked it up. And then we couldn't play for a while because it was, <laughs> yeah. That's a great story. Anything else, Robert? No, I was just going to say, um, it's it's been fantastic having you on today. And we'll make sure to let you know when the episode gets released. It'll probably be a couple weeks, kind of, yeah. we, we delay them a little bit. Um, but we'll make sure to let you know. And um, I look forward to meeting you hopefully this summer in Switzerland. If we see each other at Nana and meeting the rest of the Alpine sisters and getting to know their stories as well. And... Thank you so much for asking me. It was really nice to hear a bit about the seats as well. Thank you so much for doing this so late in Zurich and accommodating oh. our schedules. That was uh, very kind. Thank you so much. And uh, I I agree with Robert. I look forward to connecting with you in Switzerland. Please 
come to America, you will have a, an incredible experience playing here. It's just, there's such a love for this instrument and the Alphorn music, you will not forget it. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would be awesome. I've, I've never been, so that's a real, yeah, a real excuse to go. Yeah, and if you, uh, as far as like researching where some of those pieces are written, um, yeah, if you want to like kind of compile a list and send them to me, like I can throw them out to my my network of historians and try to get you in contact with Bill Hobson if you already aren't, and maybe uh, Dr. Peggy Demers. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll just see if we can kind of get some of that information and help that project along. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for the Alporn podcast. Thank you, Annette, for being here with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me.